I was a big He-Man fan as a kid, and I was like, Skeletor, and I was like, Skeletor, and I was like, that feels like me. Um, because, you know, I think at the time, there's also the meme going around of, like, Skeletor's, mm. like, daily affirmations, and I'm kind of like, oh, he's, like, a bad guy, <laughs> but he actually cares about other people, and, like, he's, like, promoting, you know, sustainability and, and all this other <laughs> this stuff that I actually do believe in. And so I was kind of like, yeah, this is perfect. I'm going to be Skeletor. Welcome to 40 Out, the original competitive skee-ball podcast. Join us as we explore what it takes to become a legend of the lane. Thanks for joining us for episode 8. My name is Joseph Bullard, aka Space Wolf. And my name is Willie Garza. I'm currently rolling under the name Wolf Space, just to troll Joey. Oh, shit. As is our whole team, actually. Yeah, this is the first time he's hearing about this. We actually all have names that are going to troll him. Oh, okay. Schemes behind the scenes. Our guest in this episode is Rick Kitagawa, a.k.a. Skeletor. He's a member of the L.A. Brewski Ball crew, an artist who draws inspiration from his love of monsters, and co-founder slash leadership coach at the Bright Spot Trust an organization that helps leaders develop the critical and practical skills to earn, strengthen, and restore trust. We're excited to share this episode with you because it's the first conversation we've recorded remotely, and we're feeling pretty good about the process we're using to capture this kind of audio. But at the same time, we're hoping to make it even better in the future. So here's our conversation with the inner monster wrangler, Skeletor. Just before we actually started recording, uh, Rick asked what I do for a living, and I think that's a good place to start. I think part of the big reason that we started this podcast was to get to know rollers from around the country, other brewski ball rollers and outside of brewski ball, because our common thing is obviously rolling in brewski ball and that attracts a whole wide range of people. So sometimes we go years without even really knowing what other people do. So do you want to talk a little bit, Rick, about what it is that you do? Yeah, my career has been super kind of weird and hodgepodge and all over the place. When I started rolling a long time ago, I was still uh, running a t-shirt printing company that I, I co-owned in San Francisco. I've also co-owned a like a gallery workshop space for creatives. And then I kind of transitioned into teaching uh, creatives the side of business at Academy of Art University um, in San Francisco. And so I was teaching for a good long period of time, and I actually still am. So I recently moved down to uh, Pasadena, California, which is pretty close to LA, basically. And um, I still teach online for uh, the Academy of Art, and I'm actually just uh, going to be launching a new startup soon, which is a leadership development program. And that's sort of my new main gig right now. Um, And then on top of that, as a visual artist, I'm always making stuff and shipping Kickstarters and making enamel pins and paintings and t-shirts and screen prints and resin cast toys. So it's kind of one of those things that my hobby kind of bleeds into business. But uh, my main kind of gig is a leadership development coach. That's awesome. I like that a lot. I saw on Instagram that you had a, a post about an upcoming announcement. I'm very intrigued by that idea. I feel like that's actually the direction that I've been thinking about for a little while as well. In my last job, I, I, I mentioned to you that you know I worked for a nonprofit and we had teachers who went to after school programs every day. Uh, and I was 
you know, their supervisor, but a mentor to them, a coach to them. It's actually what led to me sort of deciding to take on the role of coach on the Austin World Mug team and like cultivate some of those skills and just try to manage that many different personalities to find the right fit for the team. As I actually left uh, that organization a while back, I've been trying to look to see what I'm going to do in the future. And the coaching and mentoring aspect is something that I, I really enjoy. So when I saw that announcement from you, it's like, it's nice to see other people doing something similar to what, you know, I could envision for myself as well, doing leadership development and helping people in that way. That's super awesome. I mean, I, I think developing people is a skill in itself. And I think that often gets sort of waylaid by kind of the people who are doing the work. But I think that behind every successful person who is like showing up and really performing well at their job, there's some sort of mentor or former teacher or someone that was really kind of uh, fostering a lot of those skills that really empower them to do really good work. Can we go back to, to the coaching that you're doing? And I was on your website the other night and I didn't know you had a name for it. Is it Kaiju? Is it pronounced Kaiju coaching? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I was really interested in the concept behind it and, and what that word means. My coaching practice um, is called Kaiju coaching. And um, it's actually separate from the leadership project that I'm working on, which is uh, we're naming it the Bright Spot Trust. Um, but Kaiju coaching, uh, to kind of go back to that, it's named after the Japanese word for kind of like the big monsters in the rubber suits. It kind of got popularized by Pacific Rim, the film of giant oh, mechs. Gosh. Yeah, punching, rocket punching giant monsters in the face, which is a pretty terrible movie, but incredibly entertaining from my point of view. So my whole philosophy behind the coaching is uh, especially developing leaders from a point where they feel confident in themselves. And something I've seen kind of pretty universal is the idea of imposter syndrome the idea that you're feeling that like oh i'm not good enough or i'm not qualified enough for this or who's going to listen or who's going to watch or who's going to buy from me and it's pretty pervasive especially in creatives but i think throughout all walks of life um, i've worked with a lot of founders and ceos and vps of big companies who are like making lots of money and they're also like i'm just waiting for someone to find out that i'm not who they think i am and I see how debilitating it is for a lot of people. It was personally really debilitating for me for a long time. And so um, that's kind of my moniker is the inner monster wrangler. And the idea is that I go and I help people work with their inner monster as opposed to fight against it. Because my philosophy is that your inner monster, that imposter that's telling you, you know, you can't do something, usually it's actually coming from a place of trying to protect you. And even though it's going about it the wrong way, the most effective way to deal with that is actually to to kind of see it as an ally and as a compass, as opposed to like something you have to fight. So that's kind of why instead of like inner monster tamer, I feel like wrangling is more of this messy kind of you're working with it as opposed to just trying to like squash it or beat it into submission. Yeah, dude, I love that. Even the word wrangler, like choosing that word over some of the others, like, I think it's great. Like, it feels like getting your hands dirty, you know? And then, like, it surprisingly reminds me a lot of the Witcher series on Netflix that just recently released. And, like, this idea of kind of, like, you know, taking care of your monsters and, you know, not trying so hard to fight them and completely shut them out, but finding a way to kind of turn that, turn that around and use them 
you know, in a way that's, that helps you and benefits you. This kind of leads into another question I had that is kind of related to the same topic. I mean, me as a creative, and I think, you know, I teach, I think we've had conversations about teaching. Like I, I try to get these, you know, concepts across to my students as well. You know, suffering from imposter syndrome sucks. Like it can destroy you, you know, and like you fall victim of comparison on Instagram because you see these other creatives like with so many likes and your work isn't getting that many likes and like it's contagious and, you know, it can destroy you if you're not careful with it, you know, or if you care too much about what I'm leading into your article on Medium, the Jigglypuff article about, (laughs) um, about external validation. So if you could speak to a little bit about that, and then I'm curious of your thoughts in terms of if that scales across skee-ball, if you've noticed that scale across skee-ball. Great question. Um, I guess to start off kind of just the idea of the the Jigglypuff article that you brought up, uh, just to kind of talk about that with everyone else, is that like I brought up the metaphor of Jigglypuff from Pokemon for people who have been living under a rock and don't know who Jigglypuff is. <laughs> um, but no, Jigglypuff is like this cute little pink fluffy balloon type Pokemon. It's just like a ball. And uh, Jigglypuff likes to sing, but the singing that Jigglypuff does puts people to sleep. And I think it's a really apt metaphor for a lot of creatives because we're constantly trying to create something and we're trying to get this external validation of having people, you know, like our work, like you said, or like, you know, click the little heart button on Instagram and give us that dopamine hit. But at the end of the day, like by kind of chasing all of that, so many times we're kind of driving people away and irrespective of the driving people away, if we're only seeking external validation, like we're sort of making stuff for the wrong reason. And I think the imposter syndrome is super real. It's super crippling. But at the end of the day, the what we have to come to is that idea that we have to validate our own work. And it sucks. And it kind of is really hard to do because you want that external validation because it's easier actually to have other people say, I like your work than it is for a lot of people to say, I like my own work and I'm proud of that. And in terms of, of how that kind of transitions to skee-ball, I think that I don't know. I, I definitely resonate with that. Um, I I kind of, when I, I started skee-ball within a first year, I was invited to take part of the San Francisco national team. And so um, I think there is a lot of pressure on me because like when I first arrived at nationals, like I didn't know who anyone was. I've never heard of all, all of you guys and anybody else in the league. And all these people were like, oh, you're like the rookie who got picked up on the, the national team. And I'm kind of like, oh, I, I mean, I guess, like, does this happen? And, you know, there's all kind of this, um, you know, like people kind of mythologize other strong rollers at the national level, right? Like everyone's kind of like, oh, like, this is how Joey the Cat's going to perform. Or like, oh, this is how Beskimith is going to do, you know, or like Phoenix. There's like, um, you know, Serpico. Like, there, there's so many great rollers in the league. And, and especially when you've been doing it for a while, there becomes like this story about, who you are as a roller and how other people perceive you. And I find it personally difficult to believe that I'm going to win. Like a lot of times when I I meet people I'm going to be playing against in matches, I'm like, oh, like it's going to be a good match. I'm going to do my best, but anyone could win it. Because I honestly do believe that anyone can beat anyone on any given day. But I realize that I fight a lot of that internal imposter syndrome of like, oh, like I'm playing this person. There's no way I'm going to win. 
But what I have to keep in mind is that they might be thinking the same thing about playing against me. And and really, skee-ball is so mental. It's this constant battle with that and finding the confidence in yourself to be able to, one, perform at a really high level under a lot of pressure, but also to be able to take the risks that sometimes you need to in order to win a game. Do you feel like you're letting yourself down more or do you feel like you're letting others down more? That's a great reframe because I, I actually think I am letting myself down most when I don't perform well at a championship or at, at like at nationals or even just in any uh, skee-ball competition. I think that really definitely plays into the imposter, right? It's because I think that maybe I know where I, I made like a micro mistake that may, might have cost me a match or something or like caused me to lose. And I'm like, oh, there's this, this very slight thing that I should improve on or I could fix. But to anyone else, you're kind of like, you rolled a great game regardless. And what could you have done better? I'm like, oh no, there's these 50 things I could have done better. Like I, I wasn't focused on ball four in frame seven and I totally got distracted when I went for the hundo and like, you know, there's all this like stuff that I can kind of beat myself up in. Um, and I think that's part of that imposter syndrome, right? Of me, me thinking that there's sort of this ideal me and anything less than that is this failure on my part. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like, nobody's perfect. And sure, we're trying to perfect ourselves as much as possible and perform at a really high level. But I think there also needs to be uh, that self-compassion too is another big part and being able to forgive yourself and being like, okay, sure. I lost this match, but that doesn't mean I can't come back again later. And it doesn't mean that that person who beat me will always beat me. Yeah. And I think that's one of the best things that any of us can learn that we all struggle to learn is like, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to like, you know, have those moments where you didn't do your best because you can only improve upon those and learn from those things. I think that's been a huge a huge part of the mentality we take to like coaching for the national tournament is we put our rollers in really bad situations to see how they're going to react to them and know that like it's okay whatever the choice is if it's a good choice or a bad choice because they win or lose the game you made that choice you stuck with it you had that experience and now you can learn from it so if it comes up in nationals you know a little bit better like how to make a better informed decision the next time but in general, I think, as you said, that's something that a lot of people struggle with, that sort of self-compassion and like forgiving yourself of a mistake and then moving forward from it. You know, I, I want to make a, a distinction that I think might help a lot of people is we, we often tie good decisions to good outcomes. But I think it's really important to understand that you can make a good decision at the time and have a bad outcome. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Even as a creative man, like just in, you know, throughout school, like doing schoolwork, you know, as a student and even in the professional world, like you just got to fucking embrace your failures, man. Like you're not going to succeed at everything you attempt, everything you try. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing, you know, because you can take, I mean, th th that's the best way to learn, you know, is to fail. 100% agree. I, I want to take another step back. And uh, you mentioned making the national team within your first year playing C-ball, when did you actually start? So I believe I started about, I want to say it's six or seven years ago now. And it's kind of weird for me to think of myself more as like a veteran of Brewski ball 
when I think my identity was like, oh, I'm kind of like the new guy for so long. But uh, at least for San Francisco, it felt like that. But uh, yeah, so I started, um, so probably like, yeah, around 2013, uh, 2014-ish. Um, I don't quite remember the, the SKUs and number. I actually had started at the beginning of a qualifying cycle for nationals. And so I I think my first season I averaged like 269 or something, which wasn't which wasn't really super remarkable, especially given the caliber that San, of, of rollers that San Francisco had at the time. But I think what got people to notice me was the fact that I was just like really, really into skee-ball. And so at the time, uh, SF had three league nights, Sunday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And I would go to each night, even though I rolled on Tuesday, I would show up before to get practice rolling in and then I would just watch the rollers for like three to four hours. And then at like 10 o'clock when everyone was done, I would then get more practice in. And so then like people were like, who's this like random dude who's like trying really, really hard. And then in the, uh, in the Brody that skis in, I didn't qualify, but because some people didn't show up, I got to roll in it. And I think I ended up uh, rolling against number three at the time, uh, scorpion uh meet agara and who i don't believe rolls anymore but uh he was a 50 roller and i remember uh hawk the sf skio was like hey just so you know like this guy's a 50 roller too and i was kind of like yeah like i've never rolled 50s you know i i, I started out going for the 40s and then i just i was like well i'm not going to beat this guy with 40 so i started going 50s and everyone was like who what what's going on? And I actually, he still beat me in the first round, but I ended up tying him a few times. And that was enough to get everyone to be like, yo, like this random dude just like tied Scorpion, like what's going on. And so then I just kept practicing. I kept showing up and eventually I got my average up to a point where I was uh, probably, I was hovering around, I, I want to say like 12 to 13 average wise in the league. And people were like, yo, do you want to go to nationals? Um, and I remember Mastodon held some tryouts and I went to all of them. And uh, like, I really wanted to make the team. And so I think even though I might not have been the best roller or like in the top 12 at the time, I think uh, they saw the determination and how bad I wanted it and how much I was practicing. And I think they decided to take a chance on me and they, uh, they put me on a team. Yeah, I think that goes a, a long way, just that determination and that willing to that willingness to be there at every practice, at every tryout will definitely go a long way. Where did you go for that first national tournament? Uh that was in Austin. I think that was the twenty fourteen? Maybe. It was the Ski the People campaign. Yeah. That was spring twenty fourteen. Yeah, twenty fourteen. So Ski the People and that was at the Scoot Inn in Austin, Texas. That was right before FCB uh, was built, I believe. Yeah, that was the uh, the first one that I went to as well. That just like as a spectator, it was the first uh, ski ball championship that I had, had witnessed. Yeah, same for me. You did exactly what Willie and I did. Like we would show up early before our match, like after we started, and we'd get as much practice as we could in, and then. We'd play our match, and then we'd just fucking hang out until everybody was done, 
super late and like get some more rolls in. And I don't know, we we used to like be at the bar a lot on non-league nights and practicing. And that still happens in Austin. Like Full Circle Bar in Austin is really easy to get to. And I think that was uh, when I visited San Francisco and Meg and I made it, met up with you at Ireland's 32. That was one of the things that I took away from that trip and that conversation is that people don't travel across the city to get like to the bar on non-league nights. Uh, that's one of the, the hardest things now, especially for me, is to get practice in because I live fairly... I mean, from San Francisco, I could take a bus like 10, 20 minutes and get to the bar pretty easily. Um, and now it's like a 40-minute drive for me to get to the nearest league bar and uh, kind of feel like my skills are slipping a little bit. But I'm uh, I'm doing what I can to make sure I, I, I get some practice in. How far are you into the current season? Uh, we just rolled week one um last week and so we have we're in week two um and i'll be rolling tomorrow night is this your first or second season rolling in la uh this is my second season now have you found the competition to be different or similar to to what it was in san francisco i would say so i mean i think that when i like san francisco is a really old league and i think the past couple years, there have been a lot of veterans who have moved on for different life phases, people having kids and leaving the league. And then when the Oakland League started up, that kind of cannibalized a lot of really strong rollers from SF who had been living in the East Bay, but had been commuting over to San Francisco for that. And so I feel like there are a lot of rollers with a lot of potential kind of coming up, but I feel like SF, besides some of the super OG vets, obviously Joey the Cat is still phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's been kind of up and down. Like I, I remember, I don't think my average has improved that dramatically, but I over the years I kind of went from being maybe top ten to being top. Like I'd be usually second or third in the league, and now in LA, LA is a much smaller league, but there's also some very very good rollers here. OG New York rollers, Joanna and Star of David Cross. And new school LA rollers uh, like Bigfoot, Stepfather Dragons, absolutely monstrous people to be playing against each week. But, uh, you know, the, the league is still very much in the early kind of growing stages. Um, and so the competition, I would say there's a very definitely upper echelon and then a lot of uh, new people who are still trying to find their form. Um, but it's a super welcoming, amazing league of friendly people and i think that's what has actually kept me coming back to ski ball is the community over the necessarily like the hardcore competition yeah i think that's the case for a lot of a lot of brewski ball rollers especially but i also imagine you know people that roll in boston ski and the ski league out in chicago like we keep you know we just hear the same thing over and over and i think that it's kind of the way everybody feels, you know, like it's a pretty strong family, you know, and the community is really tight. And I think I mentioned this, I don't know if it's on the podcast somewhere or just a conversation, but my ski ball friends, like that circle of friends has like far out, like eclipsed, like any other circle of friends, even like my like creative designer friends. I think something very special about ski ball and brisky ball in the way that like, like we're all competitive and we're all trying to beat each other. 
but at the same time it kind of just transcends everything else like there's no weirdness about like your background or what you do for a living or like like it doesn't really matter like you show up you play skee-ball you love the game and everybody's happy it's hard sometimes to uh you know if we're talking about a national championship to watch austin lose to another city but it's also also not that hard it's fun to watch good skee-ball matches for whatever reason watching someone like perform well put up really big numbers or whatever like we'll cheer each other on even if we're competing with one another it's it's just fun yeah i will say that the austin losing to other teams part hasn't been happening very often lately i have my theories of why that is the case (laughs) but um i don't need to go into that here but uh unless you guys want me i would love to hear it i mean i honestly think uh and, and don't get me wrong, I have mad respect for the Austin Skee-Ball League because the amount of work that everyone puts into the league to grow it to the size it is, is incredible. And the amount of talent that you have there is pretty phenomenal. You know, I can, I can think of probably like 10 rollers off the top of my head who I would easily, whenever I get seated with them, I'm like, oh, this is not going to be an easy match at all. And while I'm looking forward to it because it'll be a challenge, I am not looking forward to it because they have a very good chance of beating me. But I, I think, to be honest, like part of part of it is access. You know, we've seen Brooklyn and Austin really dominate in the past couple years, um, and I think part of that is because you guys have full circle bars, right? It's yeah. like and and there's a bunch of free play um, for both. LA and I'll speak for the leagues I know for LA and San Francisco if I go on an off night for me to get practice in I'm having to invest like 30 to 50 dollars each night and we don't have a whole lot of like ski for free nights um you know like there and there's a real kind of financial as well as just like getting out there barrier type thing um that I think a lot of people and the thing i think that kind of supports that idea is that you can almost kind of divide the people at the top of who have either access to free play or have a lane and people who don't that's interesting and i would say that um you know i I think ski ball is a skill you can practice it you can get better at it the more you practice the better you get and i think being able to do it more often makes you a better roller you know, we've seen that a little bit from afar and don't really know how how that's played out for you all over the last few years. Uh, but, you know, L.A. in particular, uh, we had seen, you know, on Instagram for the last championship Sunday that the championships got moved, you know, the day of, like just before. And I know that's probably a big deal to all of you. I don't know, from an outside perspective, it seems like a huge barrier to being able to do what you love. Yeah. I mean, the fact we had our Brody moved the week, like with one week prior notice. And then we had, yeah, the championship Sunday, which because LA is so small, we actually do all the playoffs at, uh, for the team team match. And that got rescheduled three hours before we were supposed to be there. And if we weren't planning this big kickoff, we wouldn't have known until the hour of. And so then it was, figuring out a new bar and a new venue 
and then having everyone have to pile into cars and drive to a different part of LA. It, you know, it's kind of like, I would love to be able to just show up and focus, but instead I'm worried about like entirely new environments, like finding parking, like, you know, th- there's just all of these extra things that kind of take up mental energy that it would be nice to know that like, oh, okay, this is the place I go for ski ball every night and I know when it's free and when I can get practice in and I know the bartenders and, you know, it's just kind of like, it's, it's very different to have a place that doesn't feel like it's super welcoming to, to ski ball. And it dissuades me from spending an extra hour of commute time to go get extra practice. In. Right. Yeah. I can see how that would uh, compound and lead up to feeling like, yeah, it's just an access thing. Like if you don't have the time or the money to, to practice that you don't get to do that. If you don't have a place or space that is, is for ski ball. I will say that we've, you know, we have been very fortunate in that, that we do have full circle now. And even when we had, when we were at the scoop before everyone who was, who worked there uh, knew that Wednesday and Thursday was free ski and they would turn on the lanes for you. Yeah. And, it being really transparent and honest when I was practicing a lot at that time, if I was there on a Friday or a Saturday, like I could ask for dollar bills and get dollar bills to turn on the, like to, to turn on the lanes and play. Yeah. Knowing that that money was going right back into, you know, the machines in the bar. Right. And it was, it was definitely a fortunate experience for us and definitely led to me improving. And I'm sure it has led to lots of rollers, you know, improving because it's, it, it, you're right. It's just a skill that takes repetition and takes, a lot of practice if you want to be really good at it. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I've thought about that before, but but not on this level. And hearing it from you, you know, someone that's in that situation, like, I mean, it sounds rough. And you, like, hit, you know, this nail on the head a second ago when you were talking about it. It's just, like, mentally distracting, you know? Like, besides all of, the, you know, the logistics and, you know, I'm sure people are piling in cars because traffic's horrendous. There are probably people that, you know, made their way to the bar and they didn't even drive themselves. So... Now you're trying to get everybody to a new location. And that's like, you know, that's all of the things that throw you off your game. And, you know, to everyone listening that hasn't, you know, rolled at the national championships and been like on one of the world mug teams for their city, you know, or even participated in in like their local city's Brody competition, like it makes a big difference, you know, like rolling outside of the norm has like a pretty big effect on me personally, you know, when it's like you got these curveballs coming at you that you weren't expecting or it's like, really fucking hot outside like the wilmington beam you know or the wind is blowing the tent sides you know and like it's visually distracting and you're sweating and you're not normally used to rolling with like sweaty hands like all of those things make a big difference in like high level ski ball you know and it's like a barrier to overcome and so it's not like something where i want to be like oh well i want to handicap at nationals because we don't have you know we don't have the you know prototype ski ball of the future lanes that you guys do that we roll on at nationals and it's like okay that that's fine i just have to get better but i do you know i I mean it's not surprising to me i'll say that the teams that have the practice on the lanes that have more free ski nights that have more accessibility it doesn't surprise me that those are some of the best teams in the in the nation regardless of that i always want to show up and do my best and if I didn't think there was a chance of me beating everybody, I wouldn't show up at all. You know, I, I think those are real barrier issues that I, I would love to see, you know, pre ski ball HQ 
eventually address. Like I know that's like there's a lot of capital and investments in in all of that kind of stuff, and like I, I understand the tremendous amount of effort it also takes, but that is something I would like to see in terms of just like accessibility issues um, and making it more easily accessible to to more people. Both of you have talked about how skee ball is is a mental game as well as just being like the physical effort of you know getting practice in all the time in the jigglypuff article where you talk about external validation and stuff you also talk about a uh, burnout have you ever experienced burnout with skee ball over the past few years or is it something you see in other people and if you have how do you feel like you can overcome that i think there's a lot of burnout throughout the league when you see people just not coming back right they're like oh this was really fun but for whatever reason they're not super into it but among the people who you know like national level rollers and stuff like that and people taking it very seriously i think you see kind of a lot of burnout after the beeb and i'm really kind of glad that most of the time there's kind of a few like a month or a little bit of uh kind of a cooling off period because especially if you're at the beeb you're playing skee-ball ideally for like you know eight hours a day back to back like it's it's just a lot of ski ball it's a lot of being around ski ball it's a lot of watching ski ball it's a lot of talking about ski ball it's just a lot of energy too like for you know if you're not in a host city you're traveling you're flying you're figuring out accommodations figuring out where to find decent food you know um it can be a lot i think and i've always looked at the beeb as kind of this nice mix of work and vacation because i take it very seriously there's a lot of stuff i do the month prior to a national competition in terms of like reading books trying to meditate to get my focus a little bit stronger physically exercising so i have the stamina to be on my feet for like you know 48 hours straight basically um and then to go do karaoke but i think there's also enough fun of getting to see everyone seeing you guys hanging out with people from all over the country there's enough of that that kind of rejuvenates me and i think because skee ball has never been a hundred percent about the game i'd say it's about 50 50 the game 50 percent the people i personally haven't experienced a whole lot of burnout um, i feel like i can i can show up like a lot of people are like i don't want to go to skee ball i'm like oh no i i want to go to skee ball the day i come back like more skee-ball, all the, all yeah. the skee-ball. And so I've, I've definitely seen it with, with some other people, but I think I'm fortunate enough to also have the support and the community where it feels good to come back every day and it doesn't feel like a grind or a slog or, or anything kind of that I would associate with burnout. You had talked about burnout because, you know, if you're focused on the metrics, you're probably not focused on what you love about the work that you're doing. And I think it's clear that you have, you understand the love of, of ski ball. It's, it's very easy for you to make it 50% competition, 50% about the social aspect of it and being able to see your friends and spend time with your friends. And that that's, that's obviously a great outlook on it. And I think it's one that some people struggle with when you start talking about highly competitive players. It's not everyone, but it's, it's hard to find a way to find a balance between taking this seriously and having fun with it. Because when you are a really competitive person, you do want to win. And you might say it's more fun to win. You can really find top rollers who find that groove between 
this is fun to do. I enjoy being a part of the competition. I enjoy seeing my friends. And that's when people are really hitting their stride because they just love being a part of this. In thinking about the more social aspects of, of skee-ball, you roll by the name Skeletor. Has that been a name that you've had since you started? And where did that come from? Originally, when I started, and I was like, oh, I need a ski name. I For one week, I think, I rolled as Luke Skiwalker. But then I was like, you know what? I actually don't really like Luke. Like, Luke's <laughs> like kind of a whiny hero. Like, he's not... Like, I'm like, I don't, I don't really... This doesn't fit. And I've always been into... I mean, this is part... Even going back to Kaiju Coaching, why I named my professional coaching practice like about monsters is that like i've always loved monsters i've always loved just the way they're designed they look cooler than heroes like heroes are like it's just a guy and a monster i'm like that dude has wings and like like a leech mouth in his chest and laser beam eyeballs like monsters are cool and so i was kind of like i kind of want to go with something a little bit more like evil quote unquote evil i was a big he-man fan as a kid and i was like Skeletor, and I was like, Skeletor, and I was like, that feels like me. Uh, because, you know, I think at the time there's also the meme going around of like Skeletor's mm. like daily affirmations, and I'm kind of like, oh, he's like <laughs> a bad guy, but he actually cares about other people, and like he's like promoting, you know, sustainability and, and all this other <laughs> this stuff that I actually do believe in. And so I was kind of like, yeah, this is perfect. I'm going to be Skeletor. And so I've stuck with that pretty much my entire ski ball career. I've rolled as Ski Thulu a few times. I'm a big fan of the Cthulhu mythos, not the Lovecraftian racism, but the other cosmic horror element of, of the Cthulhu mythos. So kind of the idea was I was going to be Skeletor, which is kind of like, he's a bad guy and he's a boss, but he's not like a big boss. Mm-hmm. And Ski and Cthulhu is like a god basically of evil and like craziness and madness and so i was like oh when i get really good i'll I'll switch my name to ski because i doubt anyone else would roll as that but then like <laughs> i kind of made nationals a little bit earlier than i thought and i did okay and then then now everyone at the nationals knew me as ski so i was like i guess i'll just keep that so i would say my alter ego that never really got to come out was ski Nice. That's cool, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Related to that, do you find every now and then that you know people more by their roller names than their, their real names? Does, is that a issue in, in the local area or more in the national level? Probably more on the national level, especially when I first started. I was like a stats fiend, and I would be like looking up everyone's scores and being like, who are these people and everything. And I would know a lot of people by the roller name and not their actual name. Or I might know their first name, but I have like no idea of their last name. Um, and so at the local level, I I think LA is very, people tend to introduce themselves both as their roller name and their, their actual names. So I've gotten to know a lot of people in LA pretty quickly. Now, I think with the national people, I just, uh, Especially once at the last Beeb, we kind of expanded to a lot of other leagues outside of Brewski Ball. And it was cool to just meet people and find out that they had ski names. And and I don't think I I scout the competition as much anymore because I feel like I got in my own head that way. And now I just kind of be like, I just have to show up and roll well. If they do better than me, I just have to try to meet that. And if I don't, then I lose. And if I do, then I win. And like, that's ski ball. So, So I would say that 
I'm probably know more people by their full name now, but I probably also know maybe less people. It's kind of like deeper connections, but fewer people than the kind of this wide net of me being like, oh, let me tell you about the names of all of the top 20 rollers in each city. So, so I think that's kind of how my knowledge of people and their relationships to their roller names has evolved. I'm going to mention a few Austin rollers by their roller names, and I'm curious if you know their actual first name. The first one is Beskemoth. Uh, Nick. Nick Jessa. Floater. Also Nick. Skivai Strauss. Goddamn. Will. Ah. Uh, how about Sarah O? Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not bad, not bad. No, it's, you know, like, I think it's part of it, too, is, like, whether or not I become Facebook friends with them and what they have as their Facebook name, because that's what I see. And so, like, you know, I know most of their first names, and I could probably, I don't know if I could spell, but I could probably recognize their last names. But with, with Skivai, Skivai's on Facebook is Skivai, I think. So I was always like, fuck, like, like, he, like, I know, like, Will introduced himself to me, and we, we know each other. But then it was this thing where, like, I didn't have that, that kind of the the repetition of seeing the name again and again so i'm always like wait skivai i know skivai we're friends and then i'm like oh yeah will yeah i didn't know will's last name for the longest time man like i knew him as will but i had no idea what his last name was for like like at least a year i don't know if i actually know will's last name to be honest but i think i get a pass because i live sure yeah like four hours on a plane away so (laughs) that's what i at least what i'm gonna claim sorry will I think if you ask Floater, he didn't know. He oh, didn't right. know Skivai's name for a long time, actually, after having rolled with him. Like, I think he has a story about him one day finding a phone number in his phone tied to Will or something like that. I, I'm sure I'm mixing up the details, but I remember he didn't actually know that they were the same person. <laughs> that's a, Yeah, that's hilarious. That is amazing. Can you talk about some of the inspiration behind your artwork, like the monster pins and then like the, you know, the other paintings and stuff you're doing? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for asking. Yeah, no, I think a lot of the inspiration for my art comes kind of from just a blend of loving monsters. The visual design of them is what really has attracted me to monsters. I've always been a big fan of like dinosaurs, of lizards, of a lot of like sea life and so monsters are kind of a cool way of taking all of this stuff that i think looks really cool and really colorful and kind of mashing it together into you know it's like oh you make like a squid monster that also has shark teeth and also reptile scales and like that's kind of cool looking and so a lot of kind of the the sculptural work like the the designer toy type stuff that i make kind of references that A lot of the painting I do has kind of shifted more towards a little bit mix of like abstract stuff with portraiture, which is kind of what I really enjoy painting. And that's kind of how I might describe like what my artwork looks like a lot of times. But I think the inspiration behind that is really um, there's a lot of kind of social issues and things like that that I, I try to bring through. I consider myself a feminist and I think that... Uh, a lot of my work, even though it features women, I always want the women that I paint to be like physically strong and physically dangerous, but also kind of be alluring. I think the 
I don't want to say I think a lot of the inspiration from that comes uh, from really early on when uh, my aunt was actually um, murdered by her husband. And that kind of, I think, has really catalyzed me very early on kind of in, in the sphere of trying to do activist work around domestic violence and things like sexual assault and things like that. And so I kind of think that like the one thing that really does define gender a lot of times is physical strength not always but on average and kind of in my mind I I think it's probably a form of wish fulfillment but I think all of the female figures that I paint or I draw or I I write into stories I always want them to have some sort of way that they'd be able to fight back whether that's magical powers or they're actually some demoness that can draw blood out of your skull, like whatever it is, that's sort of where a lot of uh, uh, my inspiration comes from. And I think that also reflects in the writing that I do. Um, A lot of the short stories that I put out in conjunction with the pins that I create are usually about just the idea of justice of some sort. Um, Like, for example... With uh, the Wendigo pin I made, which is kind of a Native American spirit that sort of symbolizes greed in a lot of ways, I kind of tried to tie that story in with the uh, trampling of a lot of indigenous people's rights around oil pipelines and having the executive kind of be this super greedy, terrible person. And in my mind, like having people like that turn into cannibals who both cannibalize their peers and then also kind of auto cannibalize themselves because of this never ending supernatural hunger, I thought is a fitting punishment for people doing terrible things. Now I have to go back and look at all of your artwork because, you know, I can see what I can see, but, you know, after speaking to any artist, you know, about their own work and kind of digging into their brain a little bit about, what was going through their mind when they were creating that piece or what the intention behind it is or the concept, like, you know, you start to see things differently. So if you've seen, you know, for anyone out there, if you've seen Rick's work before, you know, on Instagram or his websites or on Patreon or, or Kickstarter, the many places that you can find Rick's work online, go back and look at it and see if you're noticing something different after hearing from him about that. So let's go way back. What's your earliest skee-ball memory? My earliest skee-ball memory is back when I was a kid, uh, my family would go to the California State Fair. So I'm originally from the Central Valley of California, from a place called Stockton, California. Not necessarily known for a lot of good things, but that's where I was born. And we would go up to Sacramento every year for the California State Fair. And my parents would give me a small allowance to kind of blow on whatever I wanted. And we would go to the boardwalk and... I remember walking down the boardwalk, looking at all the different games, or the midway, I should say, because it's not actually a boardwalk, uh, but the midway, and seeing all the different games that, you know, they have like pop the balloon with a dart, or they have like the little shoot out the star type games, like, you know, standard carnival games, knock over the uh, milk bottles with a bit, you know, softball, basketball shooting, right? And I'd look at all those, and all of them were like, oh, it's like three darts for $5, I'm like, that's going to blow through a good portion of my allowance in like 20 seconds. I'm like, these are a terrible cost 
per like like doing the the value analysis of how much time and fun i would get for the amount of money i was like these are terrible and then i found skee-ball and they had a whole skee-ball thing and i was like 50 cents a game for nine balls like this is i can spend an hour here like let's do this and so every year i would play skee-ball and back then i would go for the hundos but like i even remember back then i was able to hit them consistently enough that i would usually win a prize every time and so by the time i was done I would end up with like the big giant prize. And then I found as I got older, I would get the prize sooner and then they cut you off. And I'm like, I don't even want the prizes. Like you can have this one back. I just want to play skee-ball. And so then I, at a certain point I had to, in the last couple of years I would go with my family, I would have to kind of like, like I'd hit like a few hundos early and then I'd be like, oh, I'm just going to 10 out because I don't want to win. Like, I don't want them to cut me off. I want to play longer. Or like I'd have to like have other people around. I'd be like, if I would be playing with like my, my younger brother and I would like hit a high score, I'd actually have him switch with me. So when the, the carnival guy would see, they'd see my brother and they'd give him the thing and then I'd switch back. And so like I got to play longer that way. So I would say that's probably my earliest skee-ball memory. Do you, do you remember how old you were? I'd probably say around like 10 or 11, I think is when I first started playing skee-ball. Yeah, and it would only be one time a year, but... I was, for that one day, I was in it to win it. Skee-ball king. I guess not the skee-ball king, but a (laughs) skee-ball king. (laughs) True. Definitely not the skee-ball king. Just Skeletor. Baby, baby Skeletor. Between those days rolling as a kid and all the way up until now, what's the highest score that you've ever rolled in a single frame? I actually recently hit it last season in LA. Um, I hit a seven i'm trying to do the math because i got seven hundos and a bounce 50 so that's seven it'd be 760 760 yeah i think yeah i think i got a 760 that's an interesting score i've never rolled a 760 most people haven't uh, (laughs) yeah no it's uh i think i hit my first five and then I hit the bounce 50, and then I hit two, then I hit one, I miss one, and then I hit my last one, I think. Gotcha. Nice. Yeah, it's a, a weird... Everyone's like, wait, what? <laughs> like, you know, because for, you know, I'm sure everyone out there listening who has memorized all of the potential ways, if, you, if you're going all hundreds, you kind of know what the likely scores are going to be. Um, 760 is not one of them. <laughs> yeah i was totally when you started saying anything about the number seven i thought you were gonna say 72 oh of course right you're just like oh yeah like he hit seven yeah. he got 72 and he was like oh no i also got actually about 50 i guess i should say that i thought you were gonna say an 81 i thought that that was my guess of what your high score was the eight eight hundos has eluded me the bounce 50 though it was actually pretty close it was kind of one of those ones where it kind of like spins around and it's, you're like, oh, okay, like, is it going in? And then it, like, popped out, but then it, like, went into the 50, and I was like, well, yeah. like, I thought it was gonna, I was gonna get a 10th ball, and it was gonna roll back to me, but then it just went in the 50, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take that, I guess, like. Yeah, you ain't got no choice. Yeah, it's, uh, it's weird. Yeah, I'm still going for that, the unicorn, getting, still trying to get that perfect game, but, uh, I'll, I'll take a 760 as a high score. Willie's the only one in the unicorn club, uh, you know, out of three of us. A nice. two-time, two-time unicorn. Three, three times. Three times, yeah, shit. Uh, 
three time. That's that's madness, my friend. Unicornist. Three different lanes too. Not the same lane. Is this and uh, was this league no. play? Sadly, no. Just practice. One of those nights where we were just staying way too late. I think the first two were both like ten minutes before close, so like one fifty in the morning or something. <laughs> yeah. One of them specifically, I remember uh, it was Thad who was like, "You guys got to get ready to go." And I was like, "All right, I'm just gonna roll one more and hit a nine hundred." Amazing. That's legit. Yeah, I don't think I'll ever do it, man. Like I, I think every time I get close, that I just kind of. I mentally will not allow myself to do it because I start thinking about doing it. And like, I've rolled a bunch of 81s, but that's the closest I've ever gotten. Like we were talking about earlier, it's such a mental game, you know? It's like, like when you hit, it's almost, I feel like easier if you miss your first one and then you start hitting them to keep going. But like when I hit my first three, and, and now this is a story I tell myself, right? Is that like, oh, usually I miss my fourth one because I start, I'm like, one, okay, whatever, two, okay, three. And I'm like, oh, I've hit three. I could, I might be able to get a perfect game now. And then you're like, dunk. And you're like, wasn't focused on rolling, was focused on trying to get a perfect game. Exactly. Yeah, I've done that a number of times. I think that usually happens around ball five to six for me. That's like, oh, this, this is going to happen. Like, I'm going to do it right now. And then you miss ball five or six. Yeah, especially when you think, oh, I'm going to do yeah. it right now. Like, that's yeah. when you're like, oh, all the pressure comes in. I've seen so many people get close that I've started to feel like I have an influence by those thoughts and like them failing to roll a 900 because I'm like, oh, they hit five in a row. Like, <laughs> are they going to get in their own head? Are they going to do it? But yeah, I'm the same way, man. It's just fucking same thing. It's always a struggle when I see someone like going for it and I like want to grab my phone. But I'm like, if I grab my phone, it's going to mess them up. It's definitely going to have some yeah. sort of impact <laughs> on whether or not they finish. Yeah, and that's definitely going to jinx them. Yeah, huh? It's not true. Mind not powers, true at all. dude. I think it depends where I am in perspective to the lane. Like, if I'm behind them, I'll totally grab my phone yeah. and start recording. But I'm always just like, if they can see me at all, I just try to be like, nonchalantly get really excited and be like, oh, they have five. And like, <laughs> yeah. like, try to not be obviously being like, like staring at them with a duster like hit them all hit them all like so back to baby skeletor okay so that's 10 11 years old i'm curious of when you discovered that ski ball could be competitive it was much later i mean i I must have been i probably first knew about the league when i was probably like 26 maybe and i was kind of like oh there's the league this is cool but then i was like oh it needs three people and like i didn't feel like i could wrangle enough people in to be like okay like we're committing to this these eight weeks like please do this thing for me like i i I didn't really feel like i could rope people in that effectively and then it wasn't until when i actually joined i was just having drinks with a co-worker at buckshot which is where ski uh the san francisco league used to be before buckshot closed down not because of us just because organizational problems i was like oh yeah there's a ski ball machines my co-worker was like she was like I love ski ball. And I was like, you know, there's a league, right? And she's like, there's a league. And then that kind of led us into being the two main rollers. And then we had a, a bunch of people kind of alternate until we had a third roller that was really into it. And then that's how I ha- I got my first team in brewski ball. Who was that coworker? Is that person still roll? Uh, no, she doesn't roll anymore. Uh, her name is Lindsay green. She was, I think the first notorious BI ski. I know there's other other notoriouses, obviously the other Rick, the other big Rick in the league, notorious RIC from Brooklyn, and there was I think there's now other notorious or like 
Ski I G I don't know. There's a bunch of notoriouses. <laughs> yeah. But she was actually one of the first. Most of the people I used to roll with actually don't roll anymore. The third on my team, uh, Jeff Lebowski, uh, Greg is his real name. Uh, he ended up moving to Hawaii um, for work, which is, I'm kind of like, you lost skee-ball, but I guess you get Hawaii, mm-hmm. so that's kind of okay. <laughs> uh, and so then that was kind of like, oh, okay, uh, it just didn't really work out. We were like finding a, a new third, and that was difficult. And um, eventually I ended up uh, rolling with my spouse and another one of my good friends from college who I basically roped into the league. And so, um, yeah, it's, I think maybe, maybe what might be different about part of why I'm also able to really focus on the community is that, uh, I usually, I would say out of all of the seasons I've rolled on, um, there's been very few times that I've actually had a mug shot. Uh, or a a shot at the mug in terms <laughs> a <of> mug shot <laughs> a mug shot yeah yeah very few mug shots in my life yeah most of the time i play with people i know rather than trying to make a super team the one time i did i won the mug but that is the only mug i have yeah we've kind of been in the same boat there was a, a time where joe laban our third you know our third on ski i joe's was he was gonna kind of take a break and Willie and I were looking for a third person and we did consider, you know, finding someone that was like a really great roller, you know, like a Biskemoth and eventually decided to not do that and pick up James Gregg, who was like an up and coming roller that, you know, we thought would be really good. But yeah, it's like, it kind of takes some of the fun out of it. Like, I think we were more interested in helping another roller, like improve their game. I think it it always came down to chemistry with us too. Like, who do we feel like is a fitting teammate for us? Teams are are hard. You know, it's um because I I think too, especially for me, a lot of times coming in, I'm naturally seen as like the anchor or like I'm the good roller. And a lot of people I've rolled with in the past are really kind of like, oh well, I don't I kind of don't want to roll with you because I'm going to feel bad about myself. Or like, or like, I don't want to drag you down. And I'm like, I'm not really in it for the team, like to try to win the mug because like, I know you're a beginner and like, that's totally fine by me. But I I do understand that for a lot of people rolling with people who have, you know, or like they've rolled at nationals, like that can be super intimidating. Um, But I'm really fortunate that moving down to LA that I've been able to find some rollers who are pretty good. And it's just about the love of the lane rather than like oh we have to win this so you know we definitely would like to win and we're gonna try but uh it's more about just like having fun and playing skee-ball and i let the competitiveness of me get like i'm like oh when i go to nationals that's when i'll like get competitive and actually care about winning but right now it's like oh yeah i'm just having fun playing some skee-ball thinking about the uh, social aspects of skee-ball and finding the right team and all of that you know we've already talked about being in the right mindset do you like drinking while you roll or not drinking while you roll? I actually, I roll sober because I recognize that I roll probably a little bit better when I'm just slightly inebriated. But I think maintaining that to a consistent level is very difficult for me. And I usually, like, I, I've, I've tried rolling and drinking and I'll have this thing where, like, I'll start drinking it and you'll see my score, like, creep up. 
around like frame five and I'll be like just crushing it and then something happens and there's a steep drop off and then like frames like seven, eight, nine are terrible. And I'm like, okay, uh, I kind of like the idea that I just have to show up sober and I know at least I'm going to be in the same headspace and I'm a little bit just more in control of the variables. But uh, I also kind of have a pre-rolling ritual where I do this thing where I kind of like stretch back against the lane a little bit and then I like adjust my pants and then yeah I think I think that's mainly the warm-up and then it's just focusing on deciding where I'm gonna roll and, and what I mean by that is whether it's up the middle or if I'm gonna go hybrid or go hundos or um what I'm gonna attempt for is that something that changes sort of frame to frame depending on the game you're playing or do you approach the season versus the playoffs in, in a different way I think I approach the playoffs in this in the regular season pretty similarly. I approach the Brody vastly different. I think I have a mental schema that I'm more of a consistent roller. Whether or not I'm going hybrid or hundos or 4050s, I'm going to kind of have like this nice sign curve of like ups and downs of like, oh, okay, I'll hit a 38. Oh, okay, I might hit a 30. Oh, okay, I'm going to hit a fully. I'll hit a fully. Oh, I'll hit a... 37 oh i'll hit a 32 and like i'll be kind of like this up and down kind of thing or especially going hundos it's like i'm gonna get a 10 but then i'm gonna hit a 65 which is also a random bounce if for everyone keeping <laughs> score. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know and and so like and i'm okay with that but then i'm like oh yeah i'm still gonna average you know the 330 340 350 range and that's okay but brody is so different in terms of i'm like oh i have to hit a certain score and I only have two or three chances to do that. And so I think um, the way I approach that psychologically is very different. And I'm trying to change that because I've recognized that the best chance to beat me is going to be in a Brody. Like, always. Um, just because I'm, I'm, like, if you give me 10 frames, I'm pretty confident that I could be a match for most people in the league with 10 frames. Give me, like, win or, win or lose best of three frames. I'm like... 50-50, a random person off the street might beat me just because I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to be off focus. Like it's, I'm not a big fan of the Brody format, to be honest. Um, but yeah, that's that's just kind of how, how I think about it. But it's really just about, am I confident on hundos or not? And how confident am I? Can we switch gears just a little bit and uh, talk about the, the Casquino Royale event that was just hosted? You had You were involved in organizing that, right? The Casquino Royale was our big kickoff for Season 13 for LA. It was a group event for sure, uh, or a group effort, I should say. Um, but I, I was one of the organizers, and we basically really just wanted to grow LA. We have, we're a pretty small league. I think we had 15 teams last season, Season 12. Um, so we're, we're pretty small, and uh, we just wanted to have a very public facing event where people who are not league rollers could come in and have a good time and kind of see the magic that's ski ball and so we with a lot of help from eric pavoni we got his blessing and he, we kind of modeled some of the events after the past casino royale events that he used to hold uh even back at ace bar in the very early days of brewski ball and so we made a roulette board which where you could basically place your bet on what you think people are going to roll. Uh, we had like a war type game where you're just 
it's one-on-one and you're betting on who's going to beat the other person over one frame. And then, then we also had a, a blackjack version where you're trying to get 21 with limited number of balls. Yeah, it, it went over really well. We raised over $900 for charity. Um, so there's a charity component to it as well. And uh, I had a good time. We'll, we'll see as uh, we're still taking registration and people are signing up. We'll see like how much that impacted the league as a whole. If anything, it was super fun, and we got to raise money for charity, and I played a bunch of skee-ball, so no regrets there. It looked like a blast. Like, the stuff I saw on Instagram, like, I was like, holy shit, like, this thing was, like, a hit. From everything that I heard about it or saw, I, I, I was excited about it and just appreciative of it, I guess, because it, it did look like a lot of fun, and it was awesome that you guys were doing something for charity. And just, again, it's 50% about community and 50% about playing skee-ball so it, it was awesome to see that work come together yeah thanks guys yeah that's awesome man and I didn't realize it was an idea that was so old so that's cool to learn and I've noticed these types you know these types of events in other leagues like outside of brewski ball and even outside of the ski league in Chicago or ski Boston I've been you know just scrolling through Instagram and following accounts and these events happen all the time at different breweries so I'm glad it happened there because this is the kind of thing I want to both Willie and I want to bring out in this show is like these efforts, you know, that are happening and for a cause, you know, outside of like having fun and being a competitive and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I'm not going to lie. It was a lot of work and, you know, like we had a pretty awesome team of, uh, of people kind of, of running it. So, you know, I'll just, I'll give the big shout out to Wisconsin and ski Rex, stepfather dragons, Bigfoot, Obviously, Joanna, uh, Star David Cross, and also Joey the Cat, who actually came down from SF with his uh, new little one, Leo, and uh, came out to support. So it was uh, a lot of work, but it was also super rewarding. My last question is kind of random, but when looking at all your monster pins and thinking, huh, I wonder. So my question to you is, who would be a better hundo roller between Medusa and the Gill Man from creature from the black lagoon and can you make a case for why i would probably put my money on medusa mainly because i feel like she has uh more fine motor control with her hands so like she has a background as an archer right and so she's going to be able to have like i think that fine motor control that you need the downside with medusa is that because of her snake bottom i actually think she'll i i, I thought this might be a disadvantage but with the whole idea of that skee-ball is a short man's game because of the height of the lane, I think she's actually lower, her torso starts lower to the ground, or it can get lower to the ground. So I think she'd have the proper like height thing going for her, while Gilman's going to be kind of tall. And if you watch him in the movies, he's a little bit like, he's obviously super strong, but I feel like skee-ball is about, it's, it's a delicate roll, right? Like if you roll too hard, like there's there's no accuracy you're not going to hit anything and so i would definitely put my money on medusa between the two of them nice yeah i think gilman i think he seems really clumsy like even though he's like you know killing people off and stuff like that he seems like he seems like a clumsy fool to me and is are his hands webbed or are they not webbed they are webbed so he would have kind of like a i think there's there's something to that like that could be really advantageous for him but i just don't think on land he has the like the motor control that like 
that you're going to need to really like sink four days consistently. And I think yeah. Medusa could do it. Nice. That was a great fucking answer, by the way. Yeah, I think that's, that's <laughs> well thought out. And uh, it's a strong case for sure for Medusa. If someone was wanting to, to learn more about Kaiju coaching or see more of your creative works, uh, where could people find you or how should they get in contact with you? Probably the best way, if you're interested in any type of leadership coaching, uh, check out kaijucoaching.com. That's K-A-I-J-U coaching.com. Or um, by the time this airs, we will probably probably be live with thebrightspottrust.com. Um, that's my newest project uh, that I'm launching with another fabulous coach, Lisa Lambert from Rule Number 6 Consulting. And uh, we're rolling that out so by the time this goes live, that should be up and running. And if you want to check out my art, the best place is probably on Instagram at Rick Kitagawa. So R-I-C-K-K-I-T-A-G-A-W-A or at Evil Pin Club. That's the best way to get a hold of me and uh, say hi if you see me on the interwebs. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Rick Kitagawa, a.k.a. Ski Latour. And thanks, Rick, for sharing some of your story with us. I enjoyed the conversation and getting to know a little bit more about Rick, but I really enjoyed the prep for the interview and reading some of his posts at medium.com. If you enjoyed our conversation, I think it's worth your time to check out his writings for yourself. We're happy to mention that Rick's new website, thebrightspottrust.com, is officially live. So go check it out if you're interested in leadership development coaching. And let us know if you're enjoying these conversations by rating the show and leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can find us online at 40outpodcast.com and on Instagram with the handle at 40outpodcast. We started recording with people outside the Brewski Ball family last week, and we hope to share those conversations with you soon. So stay tuned for episode 9 of 40 Out, the original competitive ski ball podcast. Thanks so much for listening.